This is a strange text, um, simply because we're not, it, we're supposed to be studying Luke, but instead we're actually going to study Matthew. Because Matthew gives us the longer version of the Lord's Prayer than Luke does. And we want all of the information that Jesus gave about the Lord's Prayer. Let, we should call it the Lord's Model Prayer. So we're actually going to read from Matthew today. Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. Pray then in this way, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And Lord, we pray that you would attend the preaching of your word this morning. Open up the truth to hearts, Lord, and motivate us, Lord, incline us, persuade us to pray God-centered prayers. We pray, Lord, that our hearts would be enlarged and opened to just wanting, wanting above all things to intercede on and pray for the things that are your interests. In Jesus' name, amen. I think the one thing that just about every believer I've ever met feels is deficient about their own Christian life is their prayer life. I don't know if I've ever found any Christian ever who says, yeah, I'm completely happy with my prayer life. I know I'm not completely happy with mine. I don't think any of us feels like we pray as much as we ought to be praying or that we pray with the intensity that we ought to pray or with the feeling or experience the joy and the intimacy of prayer that we know is available to us. We instinctively know that there is kind of a deadness that comes over Christians when we go to pray. And we're deficient. We know that. We, we, we know that our prayer lives need to be instructed and they need to be brought into new life. But the great thing is that we have someone who is the master at prayer. That's the Lord Jesus. And he has come down and he's given us instruction about prayer. Now Jesus must have been the greatest man of prayer who's ever lived. I mean, think about his life for just a moment. We've been studying through Luke and we've seen that on, on occasion after occasion after occasion we find Jesus praying. At his baptism, he prays. There in Luke chapter 5 it says he would often slip away into the wilderness to pray. On another occasion, he was up all night ministering to people and healing people and casting out demons. And then the next day, early the next morning, while it was still dark, he gets up to go out and seek God in prayer. When he's going to choose his 12 apostles, he spends the whole night in prayer. When he's up on the Mount of Transfiguration, it says while he was praying, he was transfigured before them. So Jesus was a man of prayer. Now what makes this so unusual <clears throat> is that Jesus was God in human flesh. Jesus didn't have a sin nature. Jesus never committed a sin. But yet he was consumed with this intimacy, this relationship with his Father, which teaches us that if we are mere men, mere mortals, if we do have a sin nature, if we do commit sins, how much more should we be committed to prayer than the, the Son of God who is sinless and holy? So we find Jesus Christ as a 
the awesome pattern for us in prayer. And not only do we see his pattern, but we see his instruction in prayer. And last week, we found that the very first thing he addresses with his disciples is he teaches them who they're actually praying to. He says, when you pray, pray like this, our Father who is in heaven. Our Father, the infinitely, or the, I'm sorry, the intimately familiar one. He's our Father. He's that one that we can have loving tenderness with and intimacy. The one that loves us and draws close to us and welcomes us into his presence. But he's also the infinitely exalted one because he is in heaven, right? He's not just this tender, compassionate, loving father. He's also this sovereign, exalted, holy, transcendent God that we must fear. As father, we love him. As the one in heaven, we fear him. And we need to understand and bring both of those aspects of our understanding of God together when we go to him in prayer. Now, in this prayer, Jesus gives six different petitions. The first three are related to God's interests. The second three are related to our interests. Jesus tells us to start off by praying for God's kingdom, God's name, and God's will. And then he says, after you've done that, then you can address your food, your fellowship, and your holiness. In other words, your physical needs, your relationship to God, and Him delivering you from evil. Life of holiness. So God's interests come first, our interests come second. Now, notice the name, the, the title by which Jesus addresses God. Our Father who is in heaven. The first one, our Father, that relates to the second three petitions. Our food, our fellowship, our holiness. Because in Matthew 6.32, Jesus said, For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. So, as God is our Father, He knows all the needs that we have. He knows we need our daily bread. He knows we need our rent money. You know, He knows that we need to be forgiven by God so that we can continue to have this intimate relationship with our Father. He knows that we need to be delivered out of evil so that we can walk in holiness. Our Father knows all these needs. So the Father aspect, that's related to the second three petitions. The first three petitions, those relate to the one who is in heaven, the exalted one, the glorious God and King, because the first three petitions have to do with God's name, God's kingdom, God's will. And so Jesus is teaching us that yes, He is in the heavens. He's the exalted one. That's why, first and foremost, we look at praying for His hallowedness, His kingdom, His name, His will. This morning, we're just going to look at the very first three petitions. The one that relates to God's interests. So we're going to be praying about God's name, God's kingdom, and God's will. The first petition, He says, let God's name be hallowed. Let God's name be hallowed. Now, this is not a pronouncement. I used to read that prayer and think Jesus was simply telling us that we should say something like, Lord, I know that your name is hallowed. Hallowed is your name. And so that's more of a pronouncement. We're declaring something about God. His name is holy. 
But no, that, that's not the case here. Every other thing that Jesus teaches us to pray here is a petition. It's a request. Something we're to ask God. I believe the first one is too. All these are requests. We are to be praying, Father, let your name be hallowed. So we're requesting God to cause his name to be regarded as holy throughout the earth. And I believe this is the most important petition that Jesus gives us in this prayer. It's the very first one. This is the head of the list. This is the supreme thing that we ought to be occupied with. This ought to be the passion of our lives. This is why the universe exists, that God's name would be hallowed. There is nothing more supreme, there's nothing more important, there's nothing more of a priority in the children of God than this, praying that God's name would be hallowed. Now, what do we mean by that? Let God's name be hallowed. Hallowed is a word we never use, right? How many times have you used the word hallowed this week? I didn't. Well, it's a longer form of the word holy. Same root in each. It means to be set apart. It means to be sanctified. Lord, let your name be sanctified. Let it be set apart from every other name. Let people esteem it different sacred, holy. Let they value that name, treasure that name, worship that name, revere that name, fear that name, fall before that name. Let the world know that God is holy. That's really what Jesus is telling us to pray about God. Now, what does it mean for us to hallow God's name? It means that we pray, not that God's name would become holy, but that people would regard it and treat it as what it is. It is holy. And so the very first and most important petition that Jesus gives his church to pray, we ought to be praying that the people throughout this world would awaken to see the glory of God. That the blinders would come off of their eyes to see their creator and their redeemer and their king. So that's what we're to be praying. Now, what does it mean when he talks about God's name? If you talk to certain groups of people, they say, well, that means that we're supposed to hallow the name of Jehovah. And others say, no, it means to hallow the name Yahweh. Or others say, no, Elohim. It doesn't refer to any particular name of God in Scripture. In Scripture, a person's name stands for that person. When you talk about their name, you're talking about them as a person. And you're talking about the, the attributes of that individual, their character, what they are like. Let me show you this in Scripture. Go with me to the book of the Exodus chapter 33. Okay, Exodus chapter 33. We're going to look at verse 18. Then Moses said, I pray you, show me your glory. And he said, God said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. Okay, so here Moses says, Lord, show me your glory. What does God say? Okay, I'll do that. 
I'll show you my glory. I'm going to let all my goodness pass before you, and I'm going to proclaim my name before you. Now let's see what happens. Turn the page to Exodus 34. Verse 6. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed. So he's proclaiming his name. The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. God says, I'll show you my glory. I'll proclaim my name before you. And so here in verses 6 and 7, he's proclaiming his name. But he never once tells him what his name is. He describes who he is, right? This is who I am. This is my name. I am compassionate. I'm gracious. I'm slow to anger. I'm abounding in loving kindness. I keep loving kindness for thousands. I forgive iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet I will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. I'm just as well as loving and tender and forgiving. And I will visit the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. So the name in Scripture stands for the person. When Jesus says pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, he's simply saying, holy should your name be regarded by others. Let the people of this world regard you in your person and in all your works as holy and sanctified and revered and set apart. Now, the trouble, the problem is that there is so little hallowing of God's name today. Don't you see that everywhere? You turn on the television. People use God's name as a swear word. It's valued no more than a pile of manure out in a field somewhere by the people of this world. They don't care about God's name. It's not set apart. It's not holy. It's profane to them. They don't care about it. They use it. They joke about it. They curse about it. They have no regard for God at all. The Bible says the fear of God, they have no fear of God before their eyes. That's the people of this world. And so the Lord wants us to pray that that changes. That people start to see God for who He really is. It's going to take a work of God for this to happen because all men by nature are blinded. They, they have these blinders on, especially when they think about God. Now, the lost man can know anything about God that you and I can't except for this. He can't see the glory of God. These blinders over his eyes inhibit him from seeing God in his glory. And that's what salvation really is. God's stripping off the blinders so you see. You see God. You see Christ. So, this is the very first thing that we are to pray for. Now, what would that look like practically if someone started to hallow God's name? I'm going to give you four scriptures that will help you to see very simply what this is going to look like in your life and in my life when we start to hallow God's name. The first one is the book of Numbers, chapter 20. Numbers 20, verse 12. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you have not believed me to treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel, Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. Now, notice he says here, to treat me as holy. That's what it means to 
hallow God's name, to treat Him as holy. But what is treating God as holy in this verse? Do you see it? To believe Him. That's how you hallow God's name according to Numbers 20 verse 12. You believe Him. Now what had they not believed? Well, God in the verses right before this, God had commanded Moses to speak to the rock and it would bring forth water for the children of Israel. What does Moses do? He takes his staff and he hits the rock twice. <laughs> he didn't believe God. He didn't obey God. He followed his own inclination. He was angry. He was impatient. He was frustrated with the people of Israel. So rather than believing God and doing what God has said, he does what he wants to do. He did not treat God as holy in the sight of the people of Israel. Okay, number two, Isaiah chapter 8, verse 12 and 13. You are not to say it is a conspiracy in regard to all that this people call a conspiracy. And you are not to fear what they fear or be in dread of it. It is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy. And he shall be your fear and he shall be your dread. Now notice he says in verse 13, It is the Lord of hosts whom you should hallow, regard as holy. But according to this passage, how do we do that? We fear him. We refuse to fear man. And instead, we choose to fear God. Right? He shall be your fear. He shall be your dread. You're not to fear what they fear or be in dread of what they are in dread of. You're not to fear man, the opinion of man, the approval of man, the persecution of man. You're not to fear that. But instead, you are to fear the living God. So we hallow God's name by believing God, by fearing God. Number three. Leviticus chapter 22. And verse 31 and 32. So you shall keep my commandments and do them. I am the Lord. You shall not profane my holy name, but I will be sanctified. I will be hallowed among the sons of Israel. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. According to that verse, how do we sanctify God? How do we hallow His name? Yes, by keeping His commandments or obeying Him. We believe Him, we fear Him, we obey Him. And if we don't obey God, we're not hallowing His name. We're not doing the very first thing Jesus told us that we are to pray about. The most important thing of all, which is to hallow the name of our God. Okay, believe, fear, obey. The final one, Leviticus chapter 10, verse 3. Then Moses said to Aaron, It is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I will be treated as holy. And before all the people, I will be honored. So, I will be treated as holy. That's another way of saying, I will be hallowed. Well, how are they to hallow God? They are to honor God, aren't they? The ESV says, I will be glorified. I will be honored. I will be glorified. So, folks, this is what it looks like to hallow God's name. You believe Him. You fear Him. You obey Him. And you honor Him or glorify 
him. And so we are to pray that that would happen more and more and more in the world around us. We ought to start with ourselves, don't you think? There's all kinds of ways that we can be praying, Lord, help me to hallow your name, because there's this sin problem in my life that you're not pleased with. There's this temptation that I'm giving into way too frequently. Lord, I'm impatient. I'm critical. Please sanctify me. Change me. So that's praying that God's name would be hallowed in your own life. But then go on to pray about the people that you know, your family members. What are the issues that they're struggling with? How can they hallow God's name? Pray for them that they would do that. Think about people in your own church family here at the bridge. People that you know that have struggles, that need help from the Lord, the Spirit of God. Pray for them that they would hallow God's name. And then pray for, for people even beyond that. So we're praying that people would bring glory and honor to God through this very first petition. Now the second one, let God's kingdom come. Okay, first petition, Lord, let your name be hallowed. Well, how is that going to actually be fulfilled? How is anybody ever going to start hallowing God's name? It's by the kingdom of God coming. The kingdom of God coming. Now, what do we mean when we talk about God's kingdom? Remember in John 18, Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it was of this world, my servants would be fighting. But it's not of this world. It's a spiritual kingdom. It's not a physical kingdom. So when we talk about the kingdom of God, we're not talking about some kind of earthly, physical domain. We're talking about a, a kingdom in which God rules and reigns, but it's a spiritual kingdom. Now, think with me also, John chapter 3. Nicodemus comes to the Lord Jesus. Jesus talks to him about the new birth. And he says there in John 3, verse 3, that you can't see the kingdom unless you're born again. Two verses later, in verse 5, he says, you can't enter the kingdom, unless you're born of water and the Spirit. So this is a spiritual kingdom, and the only people that have come into this kingdom are those who have been born again. They've been regenerated. The Spirit of God has made them alive together with Christ. They have received a new nature, a new heart, a new life. They're new. So it's a kingdom in which born-again people have found entrance. They see it, and they have now entered that kingdom. So how do we pray that God's kingdom would come? Well, if we're praying that his kingdom would come in terms of increasing, growing, expanding, that God's kingdom would have more influence and authority and power in the earth, what we're really praying is that we're praying for people to be saved, right? This is evangelistic praying. We're praying for people to come under the power of the Spirit of God and the Gospel and be converted, be born of the Holy Spirit. So how much time in, in your prayer life do you spend just praying for people to become Christians? That ought to have a major part in our prayer life. It ought to play a major part. We can become so easily consumed with our own needs and troubles and problems and we want God to fix them. But before we do any of that, we need to be thinking about, okay, what are God's interests? God's interest is that His kingdom would come in this earth. That His name would be glorified by His kingdom spreading and expanding and filling the earth. 
And so that needs to be part of our prayer life. It needs to be a major part of it. We need to be praying not only for people that we know personally to be saved, but we should be praying for missionaries. I don't know if you're acquainted with any missionaries and where they're at and what they're doing, but how, how easy it is to forget about them because we don't see their faces, you know. But our family supports some missionaries. Our church supports some missionaries. They're, they're missionaries over in India, seeking to reach unreached peoples in that part of the world. We need to be lifting them up and asking God to give them success and favor and power as they preach the word. But you know, the way God's kingdom comes in the greatest power is what we call a revival. Now I know just saying that word, there might be all kinds of confusion about that. Because we drive down the road and we see a church and a big sign on the side and it says revival. January 18th through the 25th. Folks, if there's anything I know, it's that that is not a revival. Because you can't plan one. Revivals are the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit. You cannot use any kind of means to drum them up. They come when God wants them to come. The Spirit blows where He wishes to blow. And there have been these works, these, these powerful effusions, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit upon a region, a community that spreads like wildfire. God has done these throughout history. And we're pretty much we're ignorant of them because we've never seen one ourselves. The last revival that took place here in America was in the early 1970s. It was called the Jesus Movement. It lasted about a decade. And it, I would call it a mini-revival. It, it was powerful, but it had uh, nothing of the power of the first or the great, uh, the first or the second great awakening or the revival in 1858-1859 that spread around the United States. But it, it was a revival. It was a true pouring out of the Spirit of God when... Hippies by the thousands were being converted, joining churches, becoming pastors, worship leaders all over the nation. And you can still find these people. They're usually over 60 years old, um, right? And they're still serving God today. I mean, I know lots of them. They're the fruit of the Jesus movement, the pouring out of God's Spirit here in America. But folks, it's been 44 years. It's time for another revival, if you ask me. Oh, I want to see another one in my lifetime. I don't want to go to my grave having never seen one of these remarkable outpourings of the Spirit. And I thought I would just whet your appetite so that you'd begin to pray for revival just to share with you some stories that I have been researching lately. I'm going to share three stories, three quotes from the First Great Awakening. The First Great Awakening happened from 1740 to 1744. It started as near as anyone can tell in Enfield, Connecticut when Jonathan Edwards preached the most famous sermon probably that has ever been preached called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. People read that sermon today and they cannot believe that anybody could get away with preaching a sermon like that because our culture is so changed from the kind of Christianity that was, that was then existent. Revival really is this. It's a community saturated with God. When God comes down and begins to reveal himself, everybody knows it. Non-believers know it. The whole town knows it. It becomes the topic of discussion. That, that's what is on everybody's mind, everybody's heart. They're talking about their need to be converted. Okay, let me read you this quote. It's by the Reverend Stephen Williams. 
He was one of the pastors that was present when Jonathan Edwards preached that sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And he wrote this in his diary when he went to bed that night. Before the sermon was done, there was a great moaning and crying out throughout the whole house. What shall I do to be saved? Oh, I'm going to hell. Oh, what shall I do for Christ? So that the minister was obliged to desist. In other words, it was so loud he had to stop talking. He couldn't be heard above these groans and these cries. Shrieks and cries were piercing and amazing. After some time of waiting, the congregation were still, so that a prayer was made. And after that, we descended from the pulpit and discoursed with the people, some in one place and some in another, and amazing and astonishing, the power of God was seen, and several souls were hopefully wrought upon that night, and oh, the pleasantness of their countenances that received comfort. Now, did you notice, in, in these days, prior to about 1810, people never counted converts at a meeting. They would never say, 150 people were converted at that meeting. Because they didn't know. It takes time to know if a convert has been made. You can't count them up by raising their hands at a meeting and say, I'm, or going to the front and saying a sinner's prayer. You have to wait and find out, okay, did it stick? Did the Holy Spirit really come in? Did he really regenerate them? Are they living a new life? So the way they phrase it, they were hopefully wrought upon. They sure seem different, but we're going to give it some time to find out. And oh, the pleasantness of their countenances. I mean, if you're shrieking out, believing that you're going to slip into the pit of hell any minute, and then someone gives you news by which you know that your sins can be forgiven and taken away, don't you know that's going to be a pleasant countenance that you're going to see on people's faces? We also find this quote from the Reverend William Shirtleff. He wrote a letter in, on February 3rd, 1743. This is just fascinating to me. <laughs> he says, It was surprising to observe the seriousness that appeared in the face of almost everyone I occasionally met with. And it seemed as if there was hardly any such thing as entering into a house in which there was not some poor wounded and distressed soul, and where there was not a greater or less degree of concern in all belonging to it, as to their spiritual and eternal state. It was very affecting to be called into one family after another as I was going along the street and entreated not to leave them until prayer had been solemnly offered up to God on their behalf. A divine power was then so plainly to be seen in what had come to pass among us that there was hardly any that dare openly and expressly deny it. So this reverend, this minister is just walking down the street and people are calling to him from their front porches, Please, sir, would you come into our home? We need you to pray for us. Why? Because they had been gripped by concern for their soul. They knew they were lost. They knew they were damned. They knew they were headed for everlasting burnings and they wanted to escape and they needed someone to direct them in the way. They, they were overcome by this. That's what happens in revival. God begins just to, to, to do something in the hearts of people whereby they know they're lost and they know they're headed for destruction, and they begin stirring themselves up to try to find a way of escape. This is how Benjamin Franklin recorded what was going on. Now, Benjamin Franklin was a deist. He was not a Christian. As far as I know, he was never converted. So here's an unbeliever reporting on what he saw going on. 
From being thoughtless or indifferent about religion, it seemed as if all the world was growing religious, so that one could not walk through the town without in an evening hearing psalms sung in different families of every street. People were having family devotions, and they were singing hymns and psalms to God. You walk down the street and you hear all this blessed <laughs> hymns and singing going on. Now, when's the last time you heard that? The other day I was taking a prayer walk and I was lifting my hands and singing to the Lord and there was a guy looking at me kind of weird, like, what are you doing? I mean, that was the common thing going on back in 1740 to 1744 because God came down. And the principal players in that revival were Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield, who was the evangelist of that time, and Gilbert Tennant. Maybe one of these prayer and fasting days I can give you a talk on Gilbert Tennant. A very interesting guy. Okay, now let's fast forward 50 years to the Second Great Awakening. This one was really different from the first one because the first one only lasted for four years. The second one lasted for 50 years. From about 1790 to about 1840. Now there was a lot of carnality mixed in, but it was a genuine work of God all the same. Okay, here's a letter from the Reverend George Baxter to another minister by the name of Archibald Alexander, dated January 1st, 1802. He says, The power with which this revival has spread and its influence on moralizing the people are difficult for you to conceive of and more difficult for me to describe. On my way to Kentucky, I was told by settlers on the road that the character of Kentucky travelers was entirely changed and that they were now as distinguished for sobriety, as they had formerly been for dissoluteness, and indeed, I found Kentucky the most moral place I had ever been in. A profane expression was hardly heard. A religious awe seemed to pervade the country. Infidelity had been triumphant, and religion at the point of expiring. Something of an extraordinary nature now seemed necessary to arrest the attention of a giddy people, who were ready to conclude that Christianity was a fable, and futurity a dream. In other words, the people in Kentucky prior to this revival were secure, they were careless, they were giddy, they were frivolous, they had concluded that Christianity was just a fable, fairy tale, and futurity, heaven and hell, they were just dreams. But now he says the whole landscape had been entirely changed. In times of a move of God like this, Taverns, places of drinking just empty out <laughs> because there's no one left to go. No one wants to talk to their buddies about anything but God and the concerns of their soul. Now see, a revival is not the Holy Spirit doing something that He doesn't do at other times. It's just the Holy Spirit doing the same thing He does at other times, but just in a more intense way. He does it with more people at the same time in a, in a very short period of time. People who, ministers who have actually lived through these revivals said, I had more souls saved in a few months' time in a revival than I had for 30 years when we didn't see revival. That's what happens. Hundreds come to Christ in a few months. So I say all of this because I want to encourage you to start praying for revival. See, what we're saying, we're seeing a tiny trickle of conversions. We've seen it at just a maybe three, maybe four people in the last three years that I know about that have actually come to Christ and, and been hopefully converted. Well, that's a tiny trickle. We want to see a mighty rushing river of conversions.
Does that whet your appetite? Think, oh, Lord, do it again. Think about the state our country's in today. I don't know if we've ever been more of a, a, a sinful, debauched people than we are today. In 2015, I almost said 2014, I'm not used to that yet. <laughs> 2015, oh God, do it again. Let's pray. God, may your kingdom come. Send it, Lord. Send the power of the Spirit to do what you did once. Do it again, Lord. And then thirdly, Jesus teaches us to pray, let God's will be done. Now let's notice the connection. Lord, let your name be regarded as holy. Well, how's that going to happen? His kingdom is going to expand. He's going to bring into that kingdom sinners that he rots upon by the power of the Spirit, changing their nature, making them new men. So his kingdom is going to come. Well, how are we going to really know if God's kingdom has come? The next petition. We'll know it because they're going to start doing God's will. That is a sure evidence of conversion. A person earnestly sets out to do the will of God. Now, if you can say that you've been converted, but it's not your earnest, heartfelt passion to do the will of God, you're just fooling yourself. This is part and parcel of the new birth. There is, there is something that goes on in the heart that causes there to be a deep, earnest desire to please God and to do His will. Do you remember Jesus said that many are going to say on that day, Lord, Lord, we did miracles, we prophesied, we cast out demons, and the Lord's going to say to him, Depart from me, I never knew you. You who practice lawlessness, you didn't do the will of my Father who is in heaven. See, doing the will of the Father who is in heaven is a very, very good sign that the Spirit of God is in you. And if you can be content just to do your own will, be afraid. Be very afraid. Because that very well may mean you're lost. And you can't even see it. You can come to church and be religious week after week and can't even tell that you don't even know your horrible condition. And you're not concerned about it. Be afraid. So, what is meant by praying for God's will to be done? There's two kinds of the will of God. And theologians call these by different names. The, the way I describe it is the will of God's decree and the will of God's desire. But some people call it the will, um, God's revealed will. That's the will of God's desire. And His secret will. That's the will of God's decree. Or you could call it God's sovereign will and what God wants to take place. His desired will. Now, let me just describe these. God's secret will. That's what God has sovereignly chosen to do. And it's taking place. This, this whole world is unfolding exactly according to God's sovereign will. He has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. Over in Ephesians 1.11 it says, In Him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will. All things are taking place after the counsel of His will. So that's God's secret will. It's God's sovereign will. It's the will of His decree. We're not told to pray for that will. We can't, because we don't even know what it is. We have no idea what God's going to do in the future. So we can't pray for that will. 
Well, I guess we know a few things. We know he's coming back. We know he's going to raise the dead. We know a few general things. But in, in terms of any details, we have not a single clue of what God's going to do in the future. And plus, God's going to do this, I just want to say this reverently, whether we pray for it or not. He's decided what he's going to do. We are to pray for God's will of desire. His revealed will. Now, what's his revealed will? Well, he's revealed to us that he doesn't want us worshiping idols. He's revealed to us that he wants us to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. He's revealed to us that he doesn't want us to steal or lie or commit adultery or envy or covet. He's revealed to us that he wants us to rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks. You see, that's his revealed will from Scripture. And Jesus is saying that we need to pray that God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. So how is God's will done in heaven? Who's up in heaven anyway? <laughs> the spirits of just men made perfect. People who have died and been saved, right? Their soul is there. And angels, but not the unholy fallen angels, the holy angels. Listen to Psalm 103, verse 20 and 21. Bless the Lord, you his angels, mighty in strength, who perform his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all you his hosts, who serve him, doing his will. So how do angels do God's will in heaven? How would you describe how they obey. What was your... Okay, they, yeah, they do it by serving him, but, but if you put some adjectives to their obedience, let me give you one. Instant. God gives a command, they do it. What else? Cheerful. Willing. They don't go around with a moping scowl on their face. Oh man, I've got to do this again. God, could you please ask Gabriel over there to do it next time? I want to have a break. You know? No, there's this willing cheerfulness about it. Instant, cheerful, thorough. And Jesus says, pray that God's will will be done on earth just the way it's being done up in heaven. That we as his people would have cheerful, willing, instant, thorough obedience to all of God's commands. Now think of God's commands. Are there some commands that you can think of that you kind of chafe at? You don't like them that well. You'd rather do something else. You'd rather not be doing that particular one. Begin to pray. Begin to pray that you would do the will of God on earth as that will of God is being done in heaven. Instant, cheerful, willing, perfect, thorough obedience to God. So we ought to pray for that. Now, there are basically two kinds of people in the world. There are people that pray, your will be done. And then there are people, probably the vast majority, they pray, my will be done. When they go to God in prayer, they are, they're concerned about themselves. They're concerned about their own will getting done. Their needs being fixed, their, their problems being solved. We are to pray not... First, for our will to be done, but for God's will to be done. We're not to pray for my will to be done in heaven. We're to pray, pray for God's will to be done on earth. That's the purpose of prayer. 
praying that God would take his will and accomplish it. So the people are obeying him, serving him, worshiping him, fearing him, loving him on earth as he is loved in heaven. And so again, where do we start? Start with our own self. If we know there are things that I am not doing according to God's will, then start praying. Prayers of repentance, prayers of confession. Lord, I confess to you that you've called me to rejoice always and I'm just in a bad mood today and I'm going around with a bad attitude. Lord, I just confess that sin. I agree it's wrong. Please help me. And then go to the Word. Read something from the Word that is going to reorient you, such as rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. The joy of the Lord is my strength. Start thinking about what Christ has done for you. How you've forgiven of every sin. Justified from all things. And let the word of God wash over you so that you begin to obey that command to rejoice in the Lord always. That's just one example. But start with yourself. Pray this on behalf of your family. Pray this on behalf of your church family. That we would do the will of God. Part of the will of God is that we would actually preach the gospel to every creature. Well, we know we're not doing that as well as we ought to be doing it. We need to pray. We need to confess our failure and then ask God to help us to do that in a way that would be pleasing and honoring to Him. As we draw this message to a close, I just want to direct your attention back to the beginning and, and just cause you to think about this. When Jesus taught on prayer, he taught his disciples to pray about the interests of God. First and foremost, before they entertain their own interests. Isn't that the same thing that we have in the Ten Commandments? The first four commandments relate to God. The second six relate to man. The first four are about not worshiping idols, not taking the name of the Lord in vain, honoring the Sabbath day. Then we get into the final six, and it's about honoring your father and mother, not stealing, lying, cheating, all of, all of those other ones. So God always starts with himself first. God is uppermost in God's own affections, and God wants him to be uppermost in your affections. It's also the same when Jesus gave the greatest commandment. Someone said, Lord, what's the greatest commandment? And the Lord said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, with all thy strength. And the second is like unto it. You shall worship your neighbor as yourself. So you start with God, loving God with everything you have, and then you move on to your neighbor and loving your neighbor. So this is always the way God communicates his will for us. I just want to ask you, is that true about you? When you go to pray, and I assume everybody here does pray, if you're a Christian, I, I don't know how you can not pray. It should be as natural as breathing. But if, if you do pray, and when you do pray, what do you pray about? What's uppermost in your mind? What percentage of the time that you spend in prayer do you talk about the things that are of interest to God? His name, His kingdom, His will. I want to encourage you to begin making that the focal point of your prayer life. Start praying that Jesus Christ would be worshipped, that his kingdom would be extended, 
that people that come into that kingdom would start doing the will of God. And then and only then do we have the right to say, and Lord, I have some needs of my own. <laughs> I need some daily bread. I've got some physical needs here that I really need you to come and solve. Really, I need you to establish that fellowship with you, Lord, because I've sinned. Please forgive me. And I need you to deliver me out of temptation because I don't want to go on in this path any longer. It's good. Those are fine prayers to pray, but they don't come first. And they're not the most important prayers for us to pray. Now, if you're not a Christian, this really doesn't apply to you yet. Jesus taught us to pray, Our Father who is in heaven. And if you're not a Christian, He's not your Father yet. And so you really can't pray this prayer. What you need, more than anything else, is you need to enter that kingdom. And we've already learned that only those who have been born again enter the kingdom. Jesus taught that you can't enter the kingdom unless you become like a little child who, who is completely dependent upon his parents. He says, unless you are converted, you cannot enter the kingdom. So I'm calling upon you, if, you don't, if you're not sure that you've been born of the Holy Spirit and have been radically changed into a new person, seek God for the concerns of your soul. Ask Him. Ask Him to make you a new person. If you feel like you just can't believe, ask God to give you faith. Make this the, the driving concern of your life. Nothing is more important than that. Nothing. Let's pray. Lord, I do ask that Jesus is teaching here that I've just simply reiterated, Lord, that, that it, would, it would prove to be nourishing to our souls, edifying to us, that we would actually follow it and apply it in our life this week. I pray that you'd make us men and women of prayer. We pray, Lord, that we would not go on day after day just giving you a few tokens of prayer at a meal here, or a minute here, a minute there, but that we would take some real time to be with you and talk with you and intercede for your interests in this world. And Lord, we as a church right now pray that your name would be hallowed. It would be set apart as holy. And that you do that, Lord, by extending the kingdom of Christ throughout this world. Take men and women who are subject to the devil and are in his kingdom and translate them out of that kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of your dear son. We pray, Lord, that we would see revival. We pray that you would pour out your spirit here upon our community and upon communities around the world. Lord, we pray for a new work here in the United States of America because apart from that, I do not see how this nation can possibly be salvaged. So Lord, we need you. We need a God-saturated community all across this nation. And we pray, Lord, that people that you bring into your, 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 your kingdom would begin to obey your will. Teach us, Lord, to pray like this day after day after day, expecting to see results. And then, Lord, to live in light of the things that we pray about. In Jesus' name, amen.